Welcome to Calliope's Sanctum, a story podcast hosted by me, writer Sylvia V. Linstead. This podcast is dedicated to Calliope, primordial and first muse of epic poetry and ecstatic song in ancient Greece. This podcast is a place of sanctuary for her oldest stories. It is a return to the wild garden, to the spring, to the ground of being and the source of inspiration in the earth. Here, we honor Calliope as muse of earth. Here, you will find some of the stories beneath the stories of old Europe, short fictional and poetic pieces written and read by me that explore elements of indigenous old European mythology, a term coined by the late archaeologist Maria Gambutas, with a focus on pre-Hellenic, pre-patriarchal Greece. Come sit with us in the honeyed light, among the ripe pomegranates, in Calliope's sanctuary, where the stories that arise directly from the ground of being and life force can still be safely told and celebrated. Come lean against the sun-warmed stones, with the fragrance of propolis and myrrh in the air, and the trees heavy with autumn quince. This is the garden before the fall, a sanctuary for all hearts in this time. Join us and be revived. Podcast sound editing is by Simon Linstead. Podcast art is by Catherine Seek. And podcast music is by Yanis Linardakis. So welcome back to Calliope Sanctum. This is part three of my novella, The Dark Country, from my short story and poetry collection, Our Lady of the Dark Country. And for the full introduction to this novella, you can check out the first episode from February, um, where I give you a bit of context about the inspiration of this story. Um, And the next episode will be out soon, so I won't make you wait as long, but thank you for your patience very much. It's been quite a spring, I know, for all of us, and I'm glad to be back here with you recording this episode. Eleven. In the woods, the mother. In the mother, twins. Born out of darkness, out of long dreams into light. Long ago, an old mother walked out of the oak wood into the darkest part of a winter sky for her final hibernation. She is the one who points true north. She is the one who sees with stars for eyes, the dying, the ending, the forest full of spears. When it comes, she will walk the oak wood on feet that leave no pattern. In the woods, the mother, in the mother, the woods, fawn and acorn, marten, grouse and stone, stream and cyclamen, waxing moon and new, always she dies to save the child of bear from the old language. 12. It was the bear who found the wounded man beneath a wild pistachio bush, covered in leaves and very fevered. But it was Essel who pulled him out and felt his pulse and kept the bear from looking at his blood. 
Essel's arms had grown very strong in the month since the men of Tar had killed her father and brother and taken her mother away. She and Tiln climbed trees for shelter in the daytime, and she was often carrying the twins, though lately she'd fashioned a kind of saddlebags out of rushes that slung over the bear's shoulders. The twins preferred this, one on each side of her great belly, holding fistfuls of her fur, gurgling and sometimes shouting with pleasure. Then Essel had to silence them with her sternest words. They were fugitives, she told the babies solemnly, though surely they couldn't understand. Tiln did, and took it all very seriously, though before she'd been a silly, dreaming child who never could complete a chore without forgetting it at least twice, distracted by a beetle with furred legs, or a snail shell speckled white, or a stick that looked like a horse. Now, her knack for spotting small details was a blessing. It was Tiln who could find mushrooms where no one else saw them, and who saw the boot prints of men in the forest humus, when to Essel there were only leaves and acorn husks. This way, they kept out of sight and did not starve, though barely. For a moment, looking down at the wounded man, Essel thought coldly that she should leave him there, since he was already so nearly dead. And what good was a wounded man to them, she and her little sister and the babies? They had the bear to protect them. The lady of the hunt in disguise, Tiln whispered. And that was better than a man. Besides, men wanted things from women, frightening things, and Elsa was afraid after all they had seen and heard hidden deep in the forest, traveling mostly by night. But then the bear began to lick the wound at the man's right shoulder, cleaning away the blood, and Essel, horrified, thinking the bear was going to eat him, moved to push her away. The man let out a whimper so childlike, so full of pain and terror, that she dragged him out from under the bush in pity. This made him groan more, so she left him and brought one of the reed mats she'd made as a bedroll. She managed to get him onto it and dragged the mat into the cover of the oaks to their makeshift camp in a thicket of young trees. The saplings were twined with a thorned, blooming clematis that caught at Essel's shift. Their smell was of honey. A small stream ran nearby. She brought water from it, soaked in a rag from her skirt. She cleaned the wound at his shoulder, a deep dagger gash that had partly healed, but had opened again and now festered. She cleaned the dirt from his face until it was smooth. Then she saw how young he was, little older than she, a boy and not a man, though bearded. He slept in fever and sweated through his clothes. A dirt-darkened white shirt, the goatskin pants of shepherds. Caring for him made her feel no longer a girl, but a small woman. She supposed that she had been for at least a year now, since her first bleeding, but she'd never cared for a boy who wasn't one of her brothers. It made her feel capable and a little strange. A day and a night passed, and the boy did not wake. Essel washed the wound with a tea of wild thyme from the hillside beyond the wood every few hours. She tried to remember all the things her mother had taught her, and wept, thinking of Zola. Tiln came with olive leaves from an old tree growing alone at the oak's edge, and these they got him to drink as a tea, dropwise from a cloth. The bear suckled the twins and did not try to come near again, but watched with small golden eyes, eating acorns. Tiln gathered fingerfuls of cobweb from dark crevices. Essel did not laugh now when the girl apologized to each spider. 
Life was far more precious to her than it had ever been before the men of Tar. They tried to press these in the wound to close it, but Essel thought they might have made it worse. Tiln also found the body of a worm snake, hollow and dry on the sunny hill, its bones picked loose and clean, its skin a dark and shining tunnel. She brought three vertebrae back and laid them beside the boy's head. He slept on and murmured and once cried out. Essel thought of her brother and her father. She had seen their bodies up in the hills with the sheep. Their throats cut cleanly and the dogs too, as if they'd been attacked from behind. Now, as she could not then for the absolute terror in her, she sat rocking with grief. This boy had her brother and her father in him. He was dark like them. He had a shepherd's kidskin boots. Beneath the sweat and sick, he smelled of goat and wool. She would not let him die. Why had she found him, if only he was to die? Why the bear? Why their own lives saved, if only there was to be more death? A big moon lit the night. All the shadows moved in silver. Skeletal hollows sat under the boy's eyes. Small owls called in high blue voices. Essel and Tilne tried to sleep, holding one another and leaning against a tree on their single sleeping mat, but could not. They ate handfuls of acorns Essel had leached in the creek, bland and a little bitter, but food. The night smelled of autumn's coming cold and the cyclamen flowers that had grown after the late summer rain, and the bear who slept with the twins so buried between her paws and fur that only their feet were visible. Essel worried that they were losing their humanness, that they were losing her and Tiln and their own names. Already they hardly looked up when called. Already they turned to the bear first in everything and showed no inclination for walking. But they were alive, alive, and any aliveness was its own gift. Essel looked at the boy. The moon had turned him ghostly. He breathed shallow, infrequent breaths, only a small flutter of his shirt. She got up to watch that he was still breathing several times and to change the cloth on his wound. He no longer felt hot, and the wound no longer oozed. Did this mean that his fever had broken, or that he was dying? She didn't know. At last, she slept, with Tiln's head on her chest and her cheek on Tiln's hair. When they woke, there were little prickly oak leaves on their wool capes, and the air was chill. What will we do when it gets too cold, Tiln said, picking oak leaves off Essel's arms. The fires they lit were always very small, for fear of smoke. But Essel was looking at the boy and didn't seem to hear. The boy's eyes were open. He was looking at the bear. Castor and Cole drank at her belly. The bear looked back at him with her strange eyes, which in the dawn light were bronze and not gold. She made no movement. The boy wondered if he was dead, and at the gates of the old mother, two girls watched him. Naiads? For they had come up to him again and again with clear water, a tall one and a small one. For a moment, the small one looked like someone he had lost. But then his brother's faces stormed him, and he let sleep take him again so as not to think of how he had left them.
of how they had died. The bear shifted. She licked at Castor's feet, which made the baby giggle. The boy started again from his half-sleep. Essel leapt up at the motion and came to him this time. She had gone terribly shy the moment before, seeing his amber eyes open, fixed on the bear, full of their own secrets. Before, fevered and asleep, he had been hers. She had saved him. The boy, she called him in her mind, and imagined his life, his family, who he had loved. He was dear to her, asleep, a piece of her father and her brother. But awake, he was a stranger. She did not know what to say. You're awake, was all she could manage. A blush, too, which she hid by laying her cape over him. His knees were trembling with the morning's cold. I'm Essel, she added, not looking at his face again. We found you in a bush and dragged you here. Well, the bear found you. Who are you? That was a lot at once. She bit her lip. He stared at her, hard. It took most of his strength to hold on to her words. Then she saw tears in his eyes. Thank you, he said after a time. My life is yours, I think. And hers. He nodded toward the bear, going a little paler. I'm Vries. His own name was a terrible doorway. It opened out into memory. He closed his eyes again. This time his dreams were not hallucinatory, but clear. Mercifully, his brothers were not in them. Instead, he dreamed of the girl Lilith. Her name had come back to him with his own. Lilith, little bat, with her witch face and her quick hands. Lilith, who had been his only friend besides the dog and his brothers, who were too much more than friends to think of. Not yet, not now. Lilith he could manage. Lilith, because he had not seen her die. The last thing he had seen was her in the arms of the men of Tar, carried off with other spoils. Alsan's dagger, Spiros' heavy wool coat, and their grandfather's bronze armband. What had happened to her? He found that he was awake and sweating. The girl Essel held a cool cloth to his forehead. Now, a leaf full of acorn mush mixed with something sweet, a crushed wild apple, a bit of late blackberry Tiln had found. He tried to swallow and managed, coughing. It was Tiln who peered at him now. The expression on her face made him want to laugh, a look of wonder and of disgust, both, like he was a strange creature washed up out of nowhere and stinking. She had a long face and lips that naturally pouted, which made her look always thoughtful. Her eyes were oddly pale against her dark frizz of hair, which was matted now with sticks and oak leaves. He grinned at her. She squeaked and clung to Essel. The bear, said Vries, trying to sit up a little. Both girls darted back. The bowl of thyme water spilled. Are you her nymphs? Have I trespassed and am to be killed? Tiln giggled again and then turned red with it, looking younger than her ten years. Even Essel smiled, though her eyes remained solemn. Of course not, silly. Why would we save your life only to kill you, said Tiln, rocking forward on her heels again. 
She liked the darkness of Reese's face and the earnest way he spoke. The bear, said Essel. Her expression unnerved the boy. What had she seen to fix him with such steady gray eyes? Then he thought that maybe his own eyes looked the same. We don't know where she came from, only that the twins would be dead if she hadn't. Now they might end up part bear, which is better, I guess. Her look changed. It wasn't long after our father and brother were killed, up north, in the valley called Ateras. They took my mother for her dyes. Her crimson was always the best. We hid a long time in the forest until we were starving and the twins were screaming, and we thought, surely we'd be discovered, and then the bear found us, and, well, she left us a rabbit she had killed. We ate it raw. She let the twins drink from her. We could smell smoke from our, our house, burning. After that, we ran all together. We haven't been near to a village since. We, we don't know what places the men of Tar have taken, or if they've taken everywhere. I think the other women, I think they're the ones who gave my mother away. I'm afraid someone might give us away, too. I think the bear talks to them, to the twins, I mean. They're so small, they could only say silly things, nonsense words before. Now they're quieter, they, they make sounds like she does. They watch her like she's speaking to them. We would be dead, certainly, without her. She won't let us drink from her, though. We tried, but she pushed us away, see? There was a thin line on her cheek, which she pointed to. She hadn't spoken so much in a long time, since she'd been her mother's daughter in the oak grove, since she'd had a father and an older brother. Her chin was wet and cold. She felt it and found tears there. Tiln stared at her sister's tears. She had never seen Essel cry before, and it made her feel small and frightened and alone. Vries sat all the way up on his strong arm. I've lost all my family, too, he said. I am no one now. You're why I'm alive at all. I'll be a brother to you if, if I can be. Saying the word brother stung him, and it stung Essel, too. She opened her mouth to say something hurtful, but Tiln, who was younger and simpler still of heart, pulled a small snail shell from her pocket and pressed it into his hand. It was the color of an olive leaf with white spots. Her eyes shone like little oil lamps. They'd found a young hero, a forest god. She was sure of it. Maybe he would turn into a long-legged fawn or a fox. Mother had told a story once from the northern mainland, she said, where there were men who could turn into foxes and who sang songs that made trees pick up their roots and walk. He looked a little bit like a fox, a shaggy, dark one. His face was sharp enough, but kind. The snail shell in his hand was a wordless affirmation, an acceptance. He understood it, smiled, put the shell in his pocket. There is a safe place I know of, he said. There were tears in his throat, but he swallowed them. We could hide there for some time, until, until it seems safer. It's not far from here. It's not far from Crania either. Shouldn't we stay far away from Crania? asked Tiln. But Essel was twisting her hands, thinking. A low luster came across her face. 
We could seek news of mother, she said. What do you think we could? Her eyes shone on Vries. It was against the code she had made for them, the rules she and Tilne had kept to out of necessity and the bear with the twins by nature. I was a bandit before, you know. Vries shifted, laying back again and groaning, but there was a little smile on his face now. We spied on them and stole and tried to haunt them. That was Lilith's idea. My, my friend. I think she was taken to Crania too. Isn't it better to try at last a brave thing and die at it than stay forever hiding while the world burns? Mother would like us to try to live, said Essel, keeping her voice steady. Oh, how she wanted Zola near. How she wanted to lean on her wide hip and feel her hands smoothing and smoothing her hair and smell her smell of seawater and sweet rose oil with the musk of dye beneath. I'd like to be a bandit, said Tilne. Thirteen. Arati and Lilith looked up from the whirring of their spindles at Zola's cry. She stood hunched over one of her great copper vats, her head halfway inside, her black hair engulfed in the stink of the Kermes steam. At last she raised her head. Her face was pink and dripped. My children are not dead, but somewhere hiding, she said, recovering enough to speak. Her eyes were bright. Tears welled there, then fell down her cheeks. She did not lower her face or move to brush them away. Arati thought of the swallowing rocks. That name and vision had crouched for days now in the holes in her lace, in the fire, wanting for her to pick it up, to handle it, to carry it somewhere, as she had tried to do with the caper and the girl, the snakes in the fire, was it desperation that made these feelings come, these visions? Was she only going senile after all? For it felt as though some other force outside her own mind had come to dwell inside her. She had thought, perhaps foolishly, that it was the Earth's, but maybe it was only madness. The name of the Swallowing Rocks rose up now as she looked at Zola, and she thought that at last she knew its purpose. But still, she could not quite believe that such a thing was possible. Maybe loss had only maddened them all, and Zola no less, standing there with her head inside the dive at. How can you know this? she said to Zola, tenderly. My Kermes. It was a wholly lucid look, the one in Zola's eyes. There in the vat, they're whispering of my daughters when they are grown. They've never lied before. Once, I was good at sneaking in and out of anywhere, said Lilith wanting to help, wanting to make Zola happy. She stilled the sheep's wool that spun at her fingers. Her tone was light, but the look on her face sickened suddenly, remembering. I must leave this place, said Zola, hardly hearing the girl. She set aside the long bronze ladle and it pooled with red. Tonight, my children. She swayed. Arati was there to catch her, to sit her down, to hold her while she crumpled and wept. Across the room, shuttles clattered, loom weights clicked, spindles whirred and ticked, 
thread and cloth swelling and swelling into the night, and the women murmured or sang or sat quiet, keeping themselves and their work apart from Zola's weeping for fear it would undo their own. I had not dared any hope, Zola said after a time. Lilith held onto her hand, but she was ashamed of what she felt as she looked on Zola's strong, tear-burnished face. Jealousy. She didn't want Zola to be anyone else's mother. She didn't want Zola to forget her. And yet she knew with the sad clarity with which a woman knows and not a child that Zola's fierce affection for her was borrowed. It belonged at last and first to her children. Arati watched Lilith knowing, and Lilith looked up into that knowing. Something in her eased. I am no one's, she said to herself. That is who I am. I am my own. Her own blood had cleaned her. That's what Zola said. She was motherless, fatherless, childless. Only Lilith, little bat, the moons. Then she heard her own mother's voice saying, look at her and I am there, and she knew that she was not alone after all. She smiled a little. We will go to the swallowing rocks, Arati said. There are pools there for seeking visions and holes that know no bottom. That would be a beginning, I think, though I know not how it will end. They made their escape by night a week later under a full moon, so they need take no torches. Lilith taught them the owl cries she and the bandits had used though it made her choke with tears. They filled a heavy linen sack of food between them, slipped from their daily meals. It had been difficult to hide their plans from the other women. Arati suspected that Vela knew something and watched them keenly. But after all, it was madness and a death wish, and for that reason Vela could not anticipate what it was they planned to do. They did not all rise from their beds at once in the night's quietest hour. Arati stayed by the hearth in the weaving room and feigned sleep. Lilith pretended a stomach illness and begged Zola in whispers to come out of doors to help her. Lilith and Zola did not creep out of the sleeping chamber, but walked calmly. Lilith a little hunched over her belly, Zola patting her arm. This was Lilith's counsel, for she had seen it work many times among the war camps of Tar. Look as if you were supposed to be there. Look as if nothing is amiss. A few women stirred and slept again. Only Vela watched from her bed, with slitted eyes, and was not sure. Outside in the walled olive grove, they took up the cloaks and boots they had hidden among the stacked wood and the bag of food. Arati met them shortly. The sooty lace was in her hands. Even as they walked, following the inner wall's shadows, she hooked and nodded nervously. Lilith wondered if what she did with her fingers on the thread was the same as she had done in her mind for Alsans and Vries and Spiros. She did not try it now, but only breathed her body inside the shadows, holding Zola's hand. There were no guards in the slave women's quarters, nor beyond the olive grove and along the fields of wheat and barley that now stood dead in anticipation of winter. Slaves came and went throughout the city on various errands. It was only Krenia's outer wall that they could not breach. Their three shapes made quick, strange shadows that were hardly distinguishable from olive trees and stalks and bay shrubs. Only when they were in sight of the outer wall did they hear the sentinels walking up and down its length in boots that rang on the stone. They could see the torches from a distance and smell their smoke. 
The moon sat straight overhead, and the limestone of the wall was so pale in color it looked as if it had been quarried there from some great crater. Each stone in the massive wall was as broad and as tall as an ox cart and cut polygonally. The result was impregnable and heavily patrolled. Still, the three women kept their calm and followed Lilith's counsel. Breathe inside the shadows. Walk as a shadow. Empty your mind of fear. Empty yourself of doubt. You are a shadow. You are a shade. You are nothing at all. Instinctively, they each held a part of Arati's lace as the open end grew under her fingers. She hooked it ceaselessly inside the shadows as they went, binding them to each other and to the night. There were a series of knots at its far end, which Zola held. They came near the gates of Crania and stopped in a pool of darkness to wait and watch. Three men stood with spears crossed, guarding the entrance. The white plumes of feathers on their helmets shone in the moonlight. Lilith quailed, remembering and clutched at the lance. She thought of the redness of her own blood between her legs. Zola hissed her husband's name between her teeth and her eldest son's. It was rage she felt, not fear. Rage so hot she thought it might break their hiding with its heat. Untie the knot, said Arati, without a sound, only her lips moving. Zola calmed and obeyed. She untied the first knot, murmuring the names of her children and her husband in the cadence of an incantation. Lilith thought the stars had shifted and were falling. Then she saw that the sky brimmed with bats, thousands of them flying on tapered and delicate wings. The collective cries of their echolocation rang crosswise through the dark. Lilith's head spun. She held on to Zola and to Arati. The old woman had started to laugh silently, her whole body heaving with a laughter that had long grief in it. The bats descended in one dark and flapping mass upon the guards. All along the wall there were shouts and several arrows shot, but these did little good against so small and deft an enemy. Now Lilith was laughing too with joy, for she loved bats, loved their dusky furred feet tucked up against their bodies, loved their strange mouse faces, the tapers and hooks of their wings, how they could curl up and make a home so safely in any darkness, and how fierce and quick they were. Now, hissed Arati. They ran together inside that storm of bats, right between the three guards at the gate who were so shrouded in little wings, so busy shouting and lashing out that they could see nothing at all but the faces of bats. A little bit of lace, a little bit of lace, Arati chanted under her breath as the gate opened without effort under their hands, a single bolt easily lifted by three. All this time, and all you need is a little bit of lace. Her chanting sounded half-mad and free. Bay water lapped under the moon against the stony shore of the harbor beyond the city's gate. Fishing boats crouched at anchor, a few lit amber from within by fishermen readying themselves for a nighttime hunt. It was easier to catch the little schools of smelt by moonlight. The swallowing rocks were not far, nor the harbor's mouth where it met the greater sea, but they had to go very slowly inside the shadows. The bats had drawn many guards toward the gate, but not all, and their torchlight far above made rings of danger that moved at random down into the shadows where the three of them crept. And yet for a time they felt beyond the reach of danger as they moved in the night's air outside the wall, and freedom, the friends of bats, the keepers of some miracle they didn't fully understand.
They heard the water being swallowed before they could see the rocks. The sound of little wavelets hitting stone and a deep undulation when the water did not return. Lilith thought it sounded alive and in her mind she saw a great creature coiled there, swallowing the sea. Their skirts trailed in the water as they clambered down over the sea stones to the very edge. Sola looked back along the wall, then out across the bay toward the flanks of Mount Enos, the northern rise of Kalo. Even under the last of the setting moon, she could see the new scars where trees had been cut. How the whole western face of Enos was turning to stubble, to stumps, to stone. She looked away and down to the pools and the rocks at their feet, where the night crouched and moved. The rocks were limestone, like most of the rocks of Kephthira. Sea and rain pocked them so that their surfaces were grooved, rivuleted, whirled, little labyrinths that mirrored much greater labyrinths far underground. Here, said Arati, close to the bay's edge, where the stones made tide pools and a barrier to the sea, so that the water was swallowed only little by little. The old woman squatted by a moon-white stone, oddly unblemished by weather. A hermit crab carrying an ancient shell scuttled on purple feet away from her shadow and into a deeper pool. The sound of swallowing was very loud. Arati was laughing again. Lilith felt uneasy, watching her laughter. It had a fraying about it, an unraveling like the edge of something. By all the cockolds, but I haven't a clue what comes next, she cackled. There was a terrible silence. Panic crept all through Lilith's body. She remembered the men of Tar. She remembered capture. She began to feel dizzy with the memory of fear. Old woman, are you mad? Zola snarled, breaking through the girl's dread. Her tone was cold, furious. It was ruthless with need. Why did you bring us here if you do not know? What of the miracle of the bats if you do not know? Are we to be sacrifices? Sacrifices of tar here in the stinking tide pools before ever we have a chance of finding my children, of being free again? I know nothing. I know only what comes to me when I am listening. I know nothing of bats. I know nothing of power. Only I felt those things in my hands and the lace. I saw it, our coming here. But I did not see what came next. A pattern only. Many shapes in the dark. I know what my grandmothers told me, but it wasn't much. And those women who journeyed through the underground lived long ago, when the old language was spoken, when magic was known. I have no knowledge of how one seeks a vision, only that they come. Zola turned away without reply. She would not meet Lilith's eye. Her own were cold. Essel, Tiln, Castor, Cole, she murmured, bowing her head over the pools of water where they were swallowed. Essel, Tiln, Castor, Coal. She tried to feel what she had felt in the oak grove when the Kermes rose red through her body and made her powerful, but she could feel none of that now, only sorrow. In her mind, she could not focus on the memory of her children's faces, but saw instead the flanks of Enos, torn, and her husband and her Omer, killed. But this she quickly stifled in her heart, a scream that was silent but did not end. She had not seen it with her eyes, but she knew it in the blood on that sword the day she was taken, and in the boasts of the soldiers later when she woke, slung over one of their horses. 
the words burned in her memory, rising there. Easy to butcher as their sheep, that shepherd and his runt and bitch. The words burned, they would break her. She stamped them out and turned back to the other women. Aratia untied a second knot in the lace, muttering, her laughter gone. The surface of the pool shifted for a moment, opening into some other darkness that held no stars or moon. Zola gasped, but the vision did not hold. Lilith sat back on her heels. She watched both women, thinking of what Arati had said about the old language, thinking about her mother and the moon in the cave called Drakaina. It's a place of the old faith, she said at last in a small voice behind them. So it must be hungry for the old words. You said they used the old language here long ago. Well, I think it wants to be praised. Then maybe the water will show us something it knows, something about your children. Both of the older women turned, staring. Lilith's face was long and angled in the moonlight. She did not blink. Stone, bare, red, moon, snake, snake, snake. Lilith began to say them over and over, the words that came to mind, the ones she could recall. Then the words fell from the three women all together into the water like tears. They came without memory or effort, as if they had been given from elsewhere. They waited and said the words again and again until the night was made only of those ancient tones. The smell of the bay rose in musk and salt between the words and the women who spoke them. The water lapped, the stones swallowed, the night was endless, spinning through them. They waited, kneeling, faces close to the pool in the place of swallowing. Without warning, after a long time, the water changed. Zola understood the pattern of its changing first. She cried out, an animal noise. Essel! Essel! she cried and her voice rang through the darkness above the sound of the swallowed tide. The face of her child peered up at her from the pool, bright with recognition, the same as she remembered, but older, thinner, with infinitely more distance in her eyes. Above her was the beginning of a sunrise, the same sunrise that was above them here by the bay. Lilith and Arati leaned close to see Zola's daughter, and something inside of Lilith caught at the sight of Essel's solemn, quiet face. She felt an almost frightening recognition, like she had always known that face. She held herself and looked away. Boots clattered over stone, and several men shouted. Essel's face vanished, and Zola saw only her own weeping. I see them by the water! A voice cried across the distance near the wall. There by the water! A group of soldiers was coming toward them between the moored fishing boats along the harbor. There was a woman with them cloaked against the cold. Arati recognized Vela's small, thin form, the shape of her hatred, and knew they had been betrayed. The lace fell from her hands into the pool. Oh, my daughters, she whispered, taking Zola and Lilith by the hand. Oh, my daughters, I have done us no good this night. I have wasted what was growing. No. Lilith put her own little hand over the old woman's mouth. It was cold and soft. Her eyes were not afraid. 
Look. In the pool where it had fallen, the lace was losing its soot and turning very white. More than that, it seemed to be moving, writhing. Lilith remembered the white snake of long ago. She reached for the lace, her fingers gentle. Witch! came a woman's scream behind them. The little one is a witch, I told them all. Look how they crouch there, doing ill. Soldiers surrounded them along the harbor stones. There was nowhere to run but into the sea. I will not go to them again, hissed Zola, readying to swim, her body heavy with ending. But Lilith and Arati were not listening to her, or to Vela, or to the barked orders of the soldiers, commanding that they surrender themselves once more to tar or be killed like animals in the tide. The men raised their bows and notched their arrows. Then they saw what was growing in Lilith's hands. It was a snake, white as limestone, swelling with the light of the dawn, growing and growing until its body filled the pool and coiled around the rocks. It grew as fast as that sunrise cresting over Mount Enos. The soldiers faltered another moment. It was Vela who screamed, What are you waiting for? Kill it! Kill it! Kill them! But the snake had already opened its mouth. The scent was cavernous, the fangs stalactites. Its great head swayed above them. Then it plunged down to swallow Lilith, Zola, and Arati whole. A dozen arrows clattered useless across the stones. As fast as it took an arrow to fly, the serpent had vanished into nowhere, into the ground. Fourteen. Beneath stone, the snake sleeps. Hers are the tunnels through the underworld. Hers the caverns and the pools. Every age, she sheds entire, a sheath of star and earth, the oldest lace. There are words to call for her skin, to pray for an end. These words are also blades. Take care, for they will open a doorway into the darkest country, where words themselves are made. Of snake, from the old language. Fifteen. The children stayed several days more in the camp in the oak thicket until Vries was well enough to walk. He mended quickly now that he had a small thing to hope for, Lilith's name a warm stone in his mind. He held it there, touching it often. Tiln continued to bring him treasures. Now she knew he cared for them in the way she always hoped Essel would. A bit of bark covered in strange green lichen that stood up and flared like snouts. The tea-gold husk of a cicada, light as paper and gleaming with ridges and empty eyes. The rest of the worm snake, that strange dark tunnel of scales which they wound together around the base of a tree and laid with cyclamen flowers. For this, Tiln loved him, a puppy love that turned her clumsy all over again and for which Essel teased her as they fell asleep. What do we know of him, Tiln? She whispered into the dark. Besides, he lost his brothers and was a shepherd. He says he was a bandit, too. You would marry a bandit, Tiln? But her tone was teasing, light, and it made Tiln wriggle closer just to hear that lightness. It was so rare a sound now. 
You're too young to marry anyhow. And what would you wear? A crown of oak prickles and rotten snakes? A dress of spider silk, Tiln replied, half asleep and grinning. Oh, Tiln. The next day they left, trailing oak leaves from their fraying hems. They kept to goat and deer paths. As before, they let the bear lead the way. Castor and Cole dangled from her haunches in their saddlebags. They kept silent, watching the sun flicker over the rocks. There they passed quickly between sage and stone and wild pistachio. Fries walked beside the bear and altered their course a little now and then. They were passing around the eastern flanks of Mount Enos, where there were no villages, only sheep herders and their infrequent huts, and where the land in the mountain's long shadows stretched out in strange hummocks of green that grew around the scatterings of limestone. There were tiny oaks no bigger than Tiln, their trunks shaggy with dark moss, and little cover save the small trees and stones. They kept low in a slight valley where a dry riverbed lined with plane trees wound, but there was no one at all to see them save a herd of wary-eyed goats whose long spiraled horns cast elaborate shadows. They spoke little. Vries kept his teeth closed around the pain in his shoulder. Essel thought that every distant, unusually shaped rock was a man and ducked. Her palms were sore from tripping on the uneven ground. Tiln had filled one pocket with moss and found them a little cache of almonds at the base of a crooked tree, mottled yellow with lichen. They cracked them with rocks for a midday meal. Castor reached for his own shadow across the strong green earth, humming and burbling. Cole discovered a sound in his throat that was like a growl and practiced, alarming Essel several times that he might be choking until she understood that he was speaking like a bear and left him to it in some despair. The bear caught a rabbit, skinned it, and ate it whole, leaving behind a wet, bloody pelt that Essel gathered up into her pack for cleaning later. She had several skins, thanks to the bear. In winter, they would have at least one fur blanket. Frost hardly came to Kephthira, but sometimes snow dusted the top of Mount Enos, and certainly a night when the stars were out was too cold to spend unsheltered. By dusk, they were parched. Most of the streams were still dry. The autumn rains had yet to start in earnest, and their two water skins were empty. Vries recalled a small, cold lake in the eastern foothills above a dry riverbed. The lake was near a very small village that had been burned by tar. Coming near it, they saw a single stone house lit from within, half singed though it was. Two bent figures moved back and forth, casting tall shadows. There came the sound of an end-blown shepherd's flute. It played a sad, low song. Vries thought they might stop and show themselves, ask for a cup of water, a warm bed, but Essel couldn't bear the music, and she was afraid. Anyone might betray them, even Vries. She watched him then, sick at heart, as they climbed a small hill through old cypress trees that reached up into the night, darker even than it, and at last came to the lake. There they all bent their heads like the bear did, they put their faces to the cold water and drank. The noise of their slurping made Tiln laugh. We sound like sheep, she giggled, and I look like them too. Essel's hair, like her own, was a wild and curling mass, a black sheep's coat standing on end. Vries's young beard was stuck with leaves and dust. 
Tiln's laughter caught the others, and they all laughed, choking a little, snorting water from their noses. Even the twins, who didn't understand, made noises of glee. The stars and moon were in the water. There was a sheltered place to sleep where several stones made an uneven circle. Vries thought it safe to build a hot fire there. He knew well how to make it smokeless. He had been gathering dry twigs all day. The fire was a small star on the vast earth. They roasted a quail Vries had killed with a stone. Tiln laid the bronze-edged feathers in a circle on the ground. They slept close for warmth. The open sky was cold above, and the lake breathed out a coldness from its depths. Even the bear slept beside them, and Vries beside Essel. Tiln and the twins slept in the middle. All night, Essel woke when Vries moved. She could feel his heat without touching him and worried he had a low fever again. Or perhaps she was just very cold and careful not to let any of her limbs touch his. And yet the cold and the distance woke her. Once she found her foot was brushing his. A thrill went through her, quick as lamplight. She quelled it. But she did not move her foot away and slept at last without stirring. Just before dawn, she woke. This time, Vries had rolled so near his breath was warm on her. She rose abruptly, shedding her sheepskin, and went to splash her face. Her body felt strange and shaken, awake to some other longing that had nothing to do with the boy's body near her in the night. It confused and troubled her. A long, slender light lay across the eastern horizon. Stars still shone above, the final, the most bright. Everything smelled of darkness, of dry oak leaves and dry stones dampened by night. Above all, the lake's smell rose with an earthen, freshwater clarity. Essel crouched over it, inhaling, and the scent alone cleaned her. She splashed her face and gasped with pleasure at the coldness, how it woke her skin. The lifting light made the lake seem to rise into being before her. Its color was an indigo so dark, even as the sky grew light, that Essel wondered at its depth. It was not a very big lake, but quite round. Perhaps it was really a cave on its side, mouth facing the stars, swallowing the night. The lake looked back at her with eyes of similar solemnity. There was enough light now to see her own face in the water. It was very still, without wind. But it was not her own face she saw. Her own face had become three. Had water dripped from her chin, refracting her? She saw the face of a girl near her own age, but with eyes much older. Sharp-chinned, sharp-nosed, a thin, unnerving face that arrested her restlessness and her longing for a moment entire. Beside her was an old woman wearing a black headscarf. The third face was very beautiful, wide-eyed and wide-lipped, the most beautiful woman Essel could imagine. She cried out, it was her mother. A word was on her lips. A word was on all of their lips. The three said it together, and it seemed to fall from their mouths like a pebble into water, a word of F's and I's. The water wriggled. Mother! Essel cried, reaching out her hand. Where was she? How could she be here in the water? Who were the two beside her? 
Surely the vision was too clear to be her own dreaming. The great stone walls behind them were wholly unfamiliar. And there, her mother's face had changed, going slack and stunned with recognition. Essel! Essel! She saw her mother's lips move with her name, though she couldn't hear it. Her fingers brushed the water, but her mother vanished. Only the dawn was there, glowing, and something in the center of that glowing, beyond her own reflection, something moving below. A fish? She leaned nearer. The movement broke the water's surface, and something ghostly leapt between her lips, onto her tongue. Fifi, she said aloud. The old word for snake, but changed somehow, sharpened. She swallowed, afraid of what had happened, and the words seared her throat, going down. She edged back. The water dripped from her chin. Tiln had always been the dreamer, the one to talk to frogs and hermit crabs, the one who listened to their mother's stories and believed them, not Essel, who did not dream and did not speak to trees, preferring what was sturdy and practical and seen. Even the bear she had accepted as such, not the Lady of the Wood, as Tiln believed, come to help them in a time of need, but only a mother bear who had lost her own cubs and had turned her maternal sorrow on the twins. Essel shivered and edged away from the deep water, suddenly very afraid. Surely her mother had not been in the lake. Surely she had not swallowed that snaking word. The bear was standing right behind her on the bank. So close, Essel felt her heat and understood her size. She stood as tall as Essel's shoulder, but three times as broad. Her coat was thickening for winter. Her small eyes were amber this morning, and Essel felt them looking into her, beyond her, as if they could see the place the word had gone, the place it rested. Essel lowered her eyes. The bear did not. She started to feel afraid. Would the bear kill her? And all of them, at last? She looked up again. The bear's eyes followed her, and there was some expectation in them, some gleam of meaning that Essel could not understand. Arctus, said Essel. The bear blinked and took another step and bent her great head to drink from the lake. It was the word for bear in the old language. Essel did not know where it had come from, Arctus, she said to herself. The bear turned to look at her again. Water streamed from her black snout. This time, something in Essel thrilled at the look, the power of the bear, her broad, shaggy paws. Who are you, she thought. I am the old stars, came a reply in her mind. But she didn't know if it was the bear's or her own, for the twins began to wail then, and the bear turned away. The need to weep rose up in Essel then, and this time she could not stop it. She crouched by the water and let the great sobs heave her until she couldn't breathe. Later in the day, leeching a small skirtload of acorns in the lake, Essel decided that it was only hunger and fear that had made her think she was swallowing words and talking to bears and seeing her mother in the water. For Zola was not in the lake now, and the bear ignored her once more. Essel's stomach was a small, hard fist of hunger. Tiln was gaunt, too. Her arms were sticks. 
How would they make it to Crania, let alone survive the winter? Meat came only with luck and rarely. Acorns would soon be gone, eaten by deer and martens. Essel sent Tiln and Vries to collect acorns for the remainder of the day. She took off her undershift and made it into a sack, better cold than starving. The next morning they moved on. Vries had little use of his right arm, but still he carried the sack of acorns they had gathered. They climbed through a valley. There they saw burnt vineyards and half-ruined olive groves, and Tiln wondered aloud at the intelligence of these men of Tar for burning up good food. They kept out of sight and saw no one save a group of old women over a fire pit, making olive wood charcoal. At midday they passed the village called Por. Men of Tar lived there openly now. Their tall oak ships sat in the harbor with new red sails. Essel saw the sails from a distance and thought, sickly, of her mother. Men in the bright and gaudy dress of Tar moved along the streets. The hooves of their horses rang. Tiln held very hard to Essel's hand and almost screamed with fear when she stumbled on the path, afraid of alerting attention, though they were far above the town. Before dusk, they reached a dry riverbed that cut down the middle of a gorge. Here, Vries said, pointing up. The cave is here, far up. The walls of the gorge were sheer and jagged, with raw places where great heaves of stone had fallen during earthquakes. Small oaks in the pale, furred sage of the island grew where there was purchase. Essel swallowed. Tiln reached again for her hand. It felt warm and dry in Essel's, and she squeezed it. The bear snuffed her nose once to the earth and began to climb the narrow track. The twins did not shout or gurgle, but only watched the small trees, the blue dusk, the bats, with big eyes. Essel and Tiln did not speak. Fear sat too tight in their throats. They followed, leaning forward and walking on their toes like they had seen goats do. Vries did not speak because in the dusk, in his heart, he saw his brothers. How together they had leapt down the path like goats, and the black dog bounding behind. How the girl Lilith had leapt in front of them all, her long, young legs flexing like a little doze. Halfway up, Tiln slipped in loose limestone and shrieked, her legs skidding out and kicking stones off into the darkness. She grabbed at Essel, and Essel lunged for an oak limb. They heard the loose stones clatter at last to the riverbed far below. The small oak bent but held them. They kept climbing without a word or a look between them. A word or a look and Essel thought she might sit down there on the gorge's edge and not climb any higher. The last part took them over bare rocks. Essel froze once, looking down, her breath coming too hard, but Vries grasped her hand and told her where to put her feet. They all reached a ledge in the cave mouth at last, panting, hearts juddering. Grass grew on the ledge and wild sage and a single stunted oak. It was a young cave compared to some, its opening only just beginning to show the mineral drip of stalactites in lines of chalk white and rose. Inside was only darkness and the smell of old fires. Vries choked on a cry in his throat at the smell and the memory. He didn't make a sound again until he had lit a fire in the old hearth pit. We will be safe here for a time, was all he said. The fire made quick, long shadows on the walls. Essel saw an alcove full of figurines and offering cups dancing. 
The bear lay down with a pleased sigh, and the twins crawled all over the floor, trying to eat the stones. Tiln followed after them, loosing the stones from their fists, smiling. Essel set the bag of acorns near the fire to dry them. They slept in the dark's folds, and their dreams were in darkness. Vries dreamed of the place his brothers were, a place of water and shades. Tiln dreamed of the tunnels of small animals and the warmth of their lives. The twins dreamed of eating stones and the bear's fur and the water of the time before their birth. The bear dreamed of the cold, vast distances between stars. Essel dreamed of the lake and her mother's face in it and breathed out again and again the word she had swallowed there. Fifi, Fifi, Fifi. It slipped out between her teeth. It slipped down between the stones, between seams of mineral and wet. It slipped away from her into the earth. The bear woke and watched it. The stars moved little by little until it was dawn. 16. Into snake, into stone, into earth, there was no beginning and there was no end to their swallowing. And for all the moons waning, the woman called Zola, called Lilith, called Arati, were swallowed. They traveled the underground rivers of Kephthira in a white snake. Sometimes they were inside a dark, wet, hot body, pressing and pressing. But other times they sat in the prow of a long, white boat that passed through the caverns of limestone, dripping and humming in the earth's darkness. They were completely naked, the crone, the mother, the girl, their breasts heavy, their bones heavy, their hearts entirely light. They did not say a word, for there were no words in them except the ones they had spoken into the ground. Stone, red, bear, moon, snake, snake, snake. These words rang without speaking in the place they had come from before ever humans found them on their tongues. The women had no names in the underground inside the island, where the limestone ran its clear black rivers, the invisible opposite of that bright upper world. There was little air and sometimes only water Water, but what bore them onward was an older justice than air or even water, and like salt they had been swallowed so that only in namelessness could they be born, each seeing her own death, her own birth, the place of entry, the same and only place, and although there was no light but blackness, red moved on their eyelids in eddies, the form the cosmos took upon its making, the form a planet takes upon its end, for the earth was swallowing them, and swallowing flesh is not the same as swallowing words, you do not come out unharmed and sharpened. No, you are transfigured, wholly digested, transformed. You are made part of the snake, the water, the labyrinth, the stone, the earth's own dream, for she values not names, but the continuation of life, of which bodies are many and same and holy. All woman to water to acorn, it is no different and they had already given the words, they had done their part, they had loosened the snakes, they could be minnows now, or birds, or stones. So still and dying, the water bore them where their words had gone, there where they had been directed by a mother's love, to the lake with no bottom, among the cypress trees, and there the white snake thought she might rest a while, deep in the stillness, in the cold of the water, to digest and dream, and turn them three to eggs, to nothing more, to a birth of baby snakes. Dying, the three women... Three whirls of human memory in the belly of the tunneled dark, and only the youngest, the smallest of them all, could remember anything of herself before, because she kept holding and holding the moon, remembering that another mother had given her the oldest light, the moons. 17. 
sit on the earth. All whole things have their darkness. What you have accomplished and what you have not are one. Darkness is cupped by light. Everything is always somewhere on the path of being made, one soft edge and one sharp. Grow full with the fullness of your own being. Follow and keep the oldest light. This is how to swallow the brightness of the great turning of moon from the old language. <laughs>